0: Yo,
1: oh. yo, yo, oh. Aubrey Edwards, Tony Shivani. we bout to party, we bout to party.
2: Oh. Unrestricted, oh. got the house now, we gon' turn it up, up, bring the house down. Got that big space, pump and make them bounce now, Bouncing like they bouncing in the
1: Welcome to another edition of AEW Unrestricted. I'm Will Washington, and I'm never alone on this show. I am joined by the one and only Aubrey Edwards.
3: Hello! Hey, Will. How are you?
1: I'm doing good. We're fresh off of 200 episodes of AEW Dynamite. Oh, my God. Just thinking about what's been accomplished in those 200 episodes and and thinking about how far we've made it here, and here we are 200 episodes later, and you've been literally a part of what is it, 198 of them?
3: It's some like that. It's almost all of them.
1: <laughs> yeah. <almost. laughs> very, very,
3: very close to almost all of them. I think actually like Paul Turner is the only one who's been on every episode of TV. Yeah. So it's wild because I think for you, it probably feels like, oh my God, it's been forever, even though you've only been like with our company for like six months now or something.
1: Yeah, something like that.
3: I was trying to remember back to a time before Dynamite where like, you know, I was living a normal life <laughs> where I wasn't yelling at <laughs> half naked men on TV. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, this is wild that like it's that long that it was 2019. October, with the first episode of Dynamite, and now it's like, oh, 200. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, it's wild. I'm I'm completely blown away that we even made it this far.
1: Yeah, uh, completely blown away. I think that it, it's, it's a big milestone. I think everybody involved in it, uh, whether you've been with the show over the last three months like me, or whether you've been with the show since day one, I think everybody has something to be proud of. Uh, But one of the things that people should also be proud of is the fact that we launched a second show, and that would be AEW Collision. One of the voices of AEW Collision is our guest today. We are joined by the one, the only, Nigel McGinnis. Nigel McGinnis, thank you for being with us today.
2: Thank you very much, William. Thank you very much, Aubrey. It's lovely to be here. Can you hear me okay?
1: Oh, yeah. You sound great. Loud and proud.
2: Fantastic. You caught me in the middle of my lunch, but I wasn't going to miss this for a second time. So there we go.
3: (laughs) I I know that you've you've got a mouthful right now, but I got to talk about this magician thing because I had no idea you were a magician.
2: Yes. Do you have a question about said <laughs> magicianary or uh, It's like, how did you become a magician? <laughs> Let's start with the basic. <laughs> I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't have a card that says Nigel McGuinness magician. Um, I do go to the Magic Castle on occasion, but it all started out back in the early 2000s when I was wrestling in Japan. And uh, the sponsors would take you out oftentimes after the show's we'd sit there sometimes for like two or three hours and I wouldn't know a lot of Japanese at the time. And sometimes they'd bring food out that was still moving and I wasn't really sure I wanted to <laughs> eat it. So I brought out a deck of cards and whenever the squeamisty little, you little know, squiggly food came along, out came a deck of cards, passed it on to the next person and just did a little bit like that. And so it started like that and then it just got a bit more and more of a hobby Um Then I was doing more stuff backstage with everybody, always have a deck of cards and this little thing on me. And uh, for the longest time, people were saying, why don't you do your own show? I never really found the impetus. You know, I never really found uh, the right idea to do it. And unfortunately, it was Jay Briscoe's passing in January of this year that gave me the final inspiration, if you will, to realize that, you know, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. And if you wanna do something then then go ahead and do it. And so it took me about three weeks to sit down and come up with the ideas for a stage show, which is very different. I was doing just magic show with with, with cards and little things, you know, close up magic. And so I just decided to do something bigger. There's more mind reading, tie into wrestling as well. So I've got now a 90-minute show. I've done it four times. I did it WrestleMania week in Santa Monica here. I've done it in London, done it in Manchester, um, done it in LA as well, somewhere else. And so we're getting it on its feet now. I'm taking it around the world. I'm very, very proud of it.
1: What would you say is your best trick?
2: Close at hand, um, there's a couple that I do. And actually, when, when I see in person or do them, we can't do them through the screen.
1: Aww. I'm, I'm going to hold you to this at collision, by the way. <laughs> Literally, I'm going to stop you and I'm going to be like, you know what's up. Let's go.
2: We got it. No problems. We'll get it on camera as well. We can post it. But uh, yeah, in, in terms of the stage show. There's a couple of them, just mind reading ones where uh, we're talking about the very first match that you ever watched growing up. And, and so you, you have those things. The show's called Celebration. It's really a celebration of the love of pro wrestling. And so I use magic to emphasize various different things of that. And, and I'll have people, you know, just think of their favorite match and I'll sort of mind read it and get that connection and tell a different story based around it. So it's really fun. Yeah,
3: yeah. This is so cool. Man, I just want to talk about like magic for the next 45 minutes because I don't know anything about it. And I feel like I would just like completely get my mind blown constantly. But You've, you've got a crazy background. There's so much more we got to talk about. Oh, my God. Mm. As we kind of said in the intro, you're one of now the voices of Collision. It's We tune in Saturday, we hear the Elton John song, and then we hear my, Nigel McGuinness. And it's so wonderful hearing your voice. I get a little bit of you in my IFB when I'm in matches, and it's so exciting. It's so soothing and wonderful, but uh-huh. it's so great. And I'm so happy you're a part of the AEW team. So how did that, when did you get the call to be a part of Collision?
2: Um, it was on and off since sort of December. A couple of people reached out, and then I reached out, and we went back and forth. And so it really took, good lord, what was it, three months until they had that Ring of Honor show in LA when I, you know, finally jumped on board. And then it mm-hmm. took us another few weeks to nail down all the details. And I think Tony knew that Collision was coming up down the line somewhere, so knew he was going to need somebody in that role. And so that was it. We uh, he called me up. I think it was like, yeah, it was a Wednesday morning about 10 o'clock. And he said, do you want to come to New York with me? And I was like, (laughs) okay, um, let me just check, see if I can do that. And by three o'clock that afternoon, I was on his private jet uh, with his business partner, Bernie, flying right over towards uh, New York. Yeah, we talked about um, a lot of stuff, AEW, pro wrestling history. I got the cards out, did some magic for them as well. And I think, (laughs) yes. That sealed the deal, yeah. So I came on board then and then obviously, you know, when collision became a real thing and uh, I couldn't be more proud or more happy to be part of it. I mean, just this past week, what, good Lord, what a match to get started, right?
3: Mm-hmm. There are
2: moments like that where your hair stands on end and you just think this is this is what it's all about. So the fact that we have the uh, possibility to do that and uh, I was just thinking even this morning, you know, if it wasn't for Tony, you know given this opportunity for so many people, all three of us included, you know what I mean? To make a living in this business, in this industry that we love, you know, who knows what else we will be doing, but it's it's absolutely a blessing and I couldn't be any more excited about what's coming next.
1: Well, you've had, uh, I guess, a couple of broadcast partners at the Collision Table already, Kevin Kelly um, working with Ian Riccoboni, and then of course, there's the role for JR as well. I suppose I'll I'll start with a question of when did you find out that Kevin Kelly was going to be your partner on the show?
2: I think it was Tuesday or maybe it was the Thursday before the Saturday. So it was was very, I guess, last minute for want of a better phrase. Yeah, I I think uh, originally there was some talk about Ian coming in. I wasn't sure if whether Ian could square it away with all his other commitments. Kevin was already in the conversation as well. So I think between the two of them, Everybody settled on Kevin, and then with the opportunity for Ian to come in, if and when the opportunity presented itself. So it's worked out well.
1: Well, like, I I feel like a lot of people have been very high on you guys as a tandem. Yes. Mm -hmm. You hear left and right people saying this is already the best commentary duo in in wrestling, and that's already even setting off some others who have been (laughs) in a a team longer. But I suppose Mm. that begs the question of what kind of preparation goes into building the chemistry with somebody building that kind of duo that people can essentially attach themselves to and and feel like they are the voices of this show
2: I think a lot of that is spending time outside of the venue beforehand, you know, and sometimes that's different when you've got differing personalities. If you think of the great tandems in commentary before, like Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan, they would hang out after the shows and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And and to be honest with you, you know, I I don't hang out or didn't hang out with Kevin much or Ian beforehand. Sometimes it's just a contrast in personalities that work best together for whatever reason so it's more i think the preparation for the show in and of itself like i'd like to sit down you know as soon as i know what's going to be on the show i'd like to sit down come up with all my different ideas for all the different people involved the different stories the different strategies for the match as well other things that might come up then you talk with the guys beforehand as well and get an idea of you know where their head is going into the match and stuff like that but sometimes those that chemistry between your your commentary partner is either there or it's not you know
3: it's wild to think that you literally had a couple days heads up because i know sometimes there's guys that like when we're starting a new show people will get together kind of do some practice rounds of commentary Hmm. i could have sworn you guys had been practicing together for weeks prior to that first episode of collision
2: kevin and i worked together for a fair while in ring of honor originally he was uh him and jim cornett were instrumental in guiding me into doing commentary for the first time because whether you believe it or not when i started out i was not as good as i am today you know and that's to your point, Will, it's, it's apples and oranges. It's flavors of ice cream. Yeah? I'm, I, I love the people like what we're doing there on Collision, but Wednesday nights, Friday nights is just as good as well. It's, it's just all different shades of gray, all different you know, flavors of ice cream. It's a tough job to do whatever night you're going to do, certainly. But to that end, I really am enjoying working with everybody. So
3: follow up question because you had mentioned a little bit about like just particular matches that are so good with storytelling like we have to talk about FTR versus Juice Robinson and Jay White mm. because one of the greatest matches that we've seen <laughs> recently like you could say that about pretty much every FTR match but this one in particular was very special they have the 58 minute match in Calgary what's it like going into a match like that when you know that your voice is helping tell their story, but you've got this unique opportunity of it's a two out of three falls. It's a really long match. You've got this established storyline. How Did you approach that one any differently?
2: No, not really. I mean, you, you, you love, you salivate a match with that length. Oftentimes the difficulty with TV wrestling, uh, certainly from where I came from, is, is the matches oftentimes are so short. You get into it, you've got a couple of minutes, then there's a break, then there's a couple more minutes, then you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, blah, 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 blah. Not a lot of time to really dig your teeth into stories. But when you've got 58 minutes, obviously there's breaks involved as well. But still, and the pacing and the the build that those guys are able to do, they lend to that storytelling ability. So uh, I was super excited about it. I knew it was going to be good. I didn't know it was going to be that good. But there, you have those moments, and, and I had them as a wrestler as well where – there's that fine line between sports and entertainment. And I think everybody knows what I'm talking about there, right? And, and sometimes yeah. that line is muddy just enough to you, you step over and for that second, it's wow, it's, it's as real as real can be. Uh, and your hair stands on end and you're just like, this is it. That's I think I even remember saying uh, on Saturday night, you know, this is pro wrestling and doesn't it make you proud? Right? Like that's the epitome of the art form that's what it was to me.
1: God, I love it. It was, it was so, such a great match and it was such a great mo- uh, just everything about that. I think that the atmosphere in Calgary there and how into it they, they grew to become, like I've always said that the, the markings of a great match aren't just how, you know, we've always had hot crowds. AEW is is almost known for having those hot crowds. But when you can take a crowd and build them into it and build them even more and by the time the match is over and 58 minutes is is a long time to have that kind of atmosphere there. And Mm. for them to be by the end, just on their feet, excited, just hats off to everybody involved in that. And um, I think you guys on commentary, specifically you and Ian, I think really helped tell that story for them. I think you guys really helped Mm. get that excitement across to the TV viewer. And I think that's a, you know, obviously that's a really important part of commentary. And I think, your energy there by the end of it, the, the way you almost didn't have a voice there, mm-hmm. uh, I thought was just excellent. Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, you got to care about what you're doing, you know, and if, if that can translate and people can sort of catch on to that, then that's certainly part of it. You know, oftentimes commentary is not dissimilar or, you know, uh, as, as an official, you know, you need to be there mm-hmm. when you're needed and you need to not be there when you're not needed as well. And that's a very difficult sort of dichotomy to sort of play there. But uh, like I said, I was very uh, happy I got a chance to do it.
3: It's, it's a balance and you're doing mm-hmm. it very, very well. I'm so excited. This is such a great show. We've got more coming up. Talking with Nigel McGuinness here on AEW Unrestricted.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
3: AEW Unrestricted. We've got Aubrey and Will talking to Nigel McGuinness, one of the voices on Saturday Night Collision Saturday is all right for fighting, and I'm. This conversation's been great so far. There's so much we've talked about. We've talked about magic. We've talked about wrestling. We've talked about commentary. Yeah. So much more to chat.
2: We just talked about something else during the break, Aubrey. We did, and you
3: uh, uh, <laughs> have to buy me a drink first. And I'll tell you that story. <laughs> we won't be
2: talking about that.
3: No, nope. uh, this is yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> not embarrassing at all. Um, anyway, so what inspired you to? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm completely thrown off now. Thanks, Nigel. Really appreciate it. <laughs>
1: well, over to you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so specifically, let, let's talk because I know where you're about I'm to go done. Right I'm done. Let's, let's talk about commentary before we 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 really dive into to other things. Uh just talking a little bit more about commentary. Um what inspired you to to get into commentary?
2: Um no one would hire me as a wrestler to be perfectly honest <laughs> with you. I don't know how much of my backstory you know or what I need to get into necessarily, but I had a good run in Ring of Honor. Mm-hmm. I was a world champion there for a long time. had a lot of great matches. I got that clam digger Brian Danielson
1: over as best I could. <laughs> and then... And by the way, just to put that into perspective, so I'm a big Ring of Honor guy. So I'm a, mm-hmm. we're about to get into Ring of Honor stuff. And so uh, I watched it since about 2004. Mm-hmm. When we get into Ring of Honor, I, I really got a lot to talk to you about because all right, good stuff here.
2: Yeah. So you probably know most of this story anyway, then. So I really was pretty banged up by the end of my ring of on a run. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that I had to go somewhere else. Yeah, you know, I remember being in a hotel room with CM Punk in 2005. Uh, we both had a tryout at the time with New York. He got hired and went on to have the success that he did. And I remember him saying to me, you, you'll get to a stage where it's just time to go and 2005 was time to go for him 2008 was was time to go for me i'd done everything i felt i could do there in ring of honor and so i had the opportunity to to go to new york and um the long and the short of it was i was signed the exact same time as brian danielson we went to the same same exact same physical the doctor asked me if you had any injuries and uh, i was honest i said yeah i got a, a couple of partial torn biceps but they're perfectly okay he said, okay, send me the MRIs. I sent him the MRIs and he said, can't clear you. You know, you need to have surgery on this. I, I had, you know, one of the best surgeons in the Tampa Bay area who'd looked at the MRIs beforehand and said, you're good to go. You don't need surgery. So it was just their doctor versus my doctor. And because of that, I, I lost the opportunity to work for them. And then instead of that, signed with TNA and uh, which Desmond did- Wolf. Desmond Wolf was born and uh, thank God for it because uh, you know, it led to one of the series of matches with Kurt Angle, which I would certainly say are the highlights of my career, certainly in ring. After that, a changing of the guard and then a diagnosis of hepatitis B and then sitting at home for a year, not getting paid and then basically getting released Two weeks before I finally cleared Hepatitis B and then being sat there going, what am I going to do now? You know, like WWE weren't interested. TNA, I'm I'm certainly not going back there. And so Ring of Honor, thankfully, were very good enough to bring me in. And like I said, I I didn't want to go back to wrestling that Ring of Honor style. I didn't think like I could do it anymore. I felt like there were younger guys who deserved those opportunities. So... Delirious and um, Ring of Honor were good enough to bring me in as a commentator. And I didn't know the first thing, what I was doing about it. I thought, great, you know, make a little bit of money, no problems. But Kevin was fantastic at the time, working alongside me. And Jim Cornette was fantastic in the back, guiding me. And so that that kept me afloat for a long time. But it took me a while. It took me, I would dare say, six months to a year before I really had an idea. And the same thing happens with wrestlers. You start out and you're a wrestler and, and you like watching wrestling you don't know what you're going to be like as a wrestler. So oftentimes you get these amalgamations of the people that you liked as a wrestler. So you might do a super kick because you like this wrestler, or You might do a power bomb, et cetera, et cetera. And after a certain amount of time, you realize that's not going to work. You know, I can't be a copy of of, of somebody else. You've got to be your own wrestler. What's my voice going to be? What, what's my moveset going to be? What's my personality? And, and that's part of getting to the next stage in wrestling. And the same thing exists in commentary, you know? And so for me, it was guys like Joe Rogan, who had a big influence, you know, and I was thinking, what can I do as a commentator that other people can't do? Well, I can speak from being a wrestler. You know, how can I tell a story that a, a guy who hasn't been in the ring can tell? And so once I had that piece of the puzzle and I just added to it little by little.
3: I would like that Will and I are just sitting here like nodding the whole time. Like, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> no, that just, makes perfect sense to me. That's, it
3: does. It absolutely does.
1: Like you and I, Aubrey, have had conversations about how you've kind of taken pieces of referees, right? Like that is the, the ref you wanted to be. And so just thinking about that, like oh, yeah, yeah. it applies to all sides of wrestling. Who
2: would you go back to watch?
3: I originally, basically, my style was based on Tommy Young and mm. John Cohn. Basically both of the two of those guys And kind of figuring out How I fit into that So
2: yeah, no, I totally see it Yeah too very good and Tommy Young you always watch the way he gets so into the matches and the near falls and oh you know he was mm-hmm. just really was one of the best and the funny thing about Tommy Young is he was never a wrestling fan no he just got involved in the business and was really good at the same Kent Waltman was a guy who did commentary for the old world of sports stuff in the UK same thing you know he was never really a fan but he started doing it I think he started doing it back in the 50s and he had a 30 year run with it so it's interesting people come from all these different directions to get involved in pro wrestling and none necessarily better than the
3: other no it's just a matter of do you love it do you want to put your whole mind and body into it yes then you can have a whole lot of fun making some money in this business yeah so we talk a little bit about ring of honor your background and whatnot and then in March of this year you had your surprise return to commentary coming back super card of honor what was it like returning back to ring of honor knowing that you knew everyone on the roster you had the title runs that you did mm-hmm. and on top of that it was being it was a very emotional pay-per-view due to the loss of Jay Briscoe, yeah. what was that day like for you?
2: It was exciting, certainly. I headed down to the arena with my girlfriend, and uh, we ended up sitting in the TV truck for the majority of the show, keeping away so nobody knew that I was there. You know, and I literally just came out of the TV truck, went straight out. So there was a lot of that. There were sort of just whisperings to Kevin on the phone, so we had an idea of what we were going to talk about, et cetera, et cetera. So that was very exciting. But then to come out and get such a lovely reaction and also – you have a cachet, you know what I mean? And, and unfortunately, for whatever reason, when you when you work uh, in New York, you don't have that same cachet. If you haven't done it there, you haven't really done it at all. And that's just their mindset. It's not to say it's better or worse, but that's just their mindset. And, and that's the way it is. But So oftentimes, sometimes you would feel like, yeah, you can't really talk about anything you did or any of the matches that you had because they weren't there. Whereas now in Ring of Honor and certainly in Collision, everything's fair game. I feel like I've almost come full circle. I don't have that sort of... Dirty past that I don't talk about, you know. It's everything's open, and and you can it can certainly add to it, you know. And and having said that, I've got to be clear: I don't have a bad word to say about my time there in New York in any way, shape, or form. It was nearly six years of nothing but blessings, which I will always be grateful for. Uh, What some of the best times of my life. I made great money and. If, if this is what I am as a commentator now, nearly all of it came from working there, you know, from the people who were good enough to coach me and teach me how to do this job. So I will always be absolutely blessed for my time there without any question.
1: Well, I want to talk about your time in Ring of Honor a little bit. Mm-hmm. you're one of those tentpole names of Ring of Honor, right? Like when people talk about the beginning stages of Ring of Honor, the the, the genesis of Ring of Honor and those formative years, there's names people mention, right? They mention Samoa Joe, they mention Brian Danielson, they mention CM Punk. They'll talk about the Briscoes. But Nigel McGinnis is another one of those names that's mentioned amongst the, like I said, the tentpole names of Ring of Honor history. You, of course, uh, had the Ring of Honor Pure Championship for a record 350 days. You took it off Samoa Joe, Talking a little bit about that run of Ring of Honor, you know, you mentioned that you were there six years, right? Uh, how did that debut come about? To go to Ring of Honor originally? Yes, the original Ring of Honor.
2: So the first I heard about Ring of Honor, I was in um, developmental. In uh, I wasn't under contract, uh, but I was with HWA in Cincinnati, and they had the developmental deal at the time. So I had all the guys there from WWE, and I was struggling I think is a good way of saying that I just I wasn't at the level that I needed to be at to either get a contract or be successful in the business you know I had a great basis a great grounding a great professionalism as well but I didn't have the British style I didn't have the, any way of sort of really standing out. So I'd, I'd taken a couple of tours back there. The best advice I ever got in this industry was William Regal, who was good enough to watch my match at the original, well, the second Brian Pillman memorial show and tell me that I needed to go back to England to learn the British style. And without <laughs> that, I tell you, I wouldn't have had a career. I wouldn't have made a dime in this, in this job, certainly. So that was the best advice. And I will always be grateful for him for telling me that. But even then, I still wasn't advancing that much. And I was splitting my time between England and America. Spanky uh, at the time was there as well, Brian Kendrick, and he had a, a VHS cassette. It said ROH and had a picture in, uh, of Brian Danielson, you know, looking like Casper the ghost because he never has a tap. <laughs> but then I, I watched some of those matches and I'm like, good Lord, I do not want to do this. You know what I mean? This They're killing each other. I don't want to do this. It's, you know what I mean? But then I, after watching it a little bit more, you kind of get that sense that, like, okay, Okay, maybe I can find a spot in this and maybe this is the way that I need to go. Because at the time, WWE wasn't hiring anybody that wasn't 6'4 and 240. That got the edict coming down, yeah. So there there was no opportunity for anyone from the indies at that stage, you know, if you weren't just a big, big, big muscled guy. It took a while, but the Matt Stryker were making journeys out to the East Coast, driving themselves out to Philly and doing some shows for them. And they were good enough to give Gabe a VHS cassette of some of my stuff. And I knew a little bit of British stuff like that. So Gabe booked me on a couple of shows. I came in. I just did the British stuff. And you know, to speak to William Regal, that was what got me hired there. Just a the little British stuff, which was you know nice and pretty. And that got me onto the the shows. And then once I was on the shows, I watched every single match from the beginning to the very end. I watched every one. I'm like, what can I do? How can I get to that next level? And I, I remember talking to Brian Danielson one time early on. I said, you know, you're, you're one of the top guys here. You know, what have I got to do to get to that level? And, and he said, I don't know. and he just walked off and so
3: (laughs) that's a very brian story (laughs) that is the
2: most
1: brian danielson story
2: (laughs) so thankfully uh i was able to watch a a lot more of the other matches and realize okay there are certain things about ring of honor which you really need to do i need to be able to you know do some fantastic it's the epitome of the art form again much like in in in, um, aew now and whether it's because you're a high flyer or because you know you work that super strong style influenced by the old Japan days in the in the uh, mid to late nineties, you have to have something like that. So I upped my style. I made it more violent, more aggressive, more hard hitting. I took stuff from my tours in Japan. I started working in Noah, and so just just developed that sort of new version. I guess you'd call it a uh, punk rock Johnny Saint for one of a better you know phrase punk rock johnny
3: saint i mm. love it that's oh put that on a business card man that's freaking great <laughs> magician punk what? rock johnny saint <laughs> we'll just start putting bullet points on there it'll be like a whole resume i actually didn't know this but there there was a documentary that you put together you self-directed last of the mcginnis 2012 mm. detailing sort of your farewell to wrestling like as we had touched on you and brian kind of went to ww at the same time you're not able to actually get signed because of injuries and whatnot. So what sort of was the decision to go this route of eventually leaving, but also creating sort of a a story around your departure from wrestling?
2: It was Colt Cabana. Yeah, it was 100% Colt Cabana. He was down in Florida. Love Colt. Yeah. And uh, he had done the Wrestling Road Diaries uh, right beforehand. I think that was getting ready to be released. And we were just hang, hanging out on the beach. And he was saying, I'll never forget so he was saying, you know what? You should do a podcast. I said, what? <laughs> a what? A podcast. What's a podcast? <laughs> you talk to each other and it just, you know, you put it online and people can listen to it. So there's no video. No, no video. People just listening to it. Why would people do that? I mean, there's YouTube. You can watch videos. Why, you know, and clearly, as always, Cabana is, is ahead of the game. And um, mm-hmm. so I didn't do a podcast uh, at that point. <laughs> but I did take him on the idea. And I said, look, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I explained to him the situation. You know, what am I going to do in this, his career? And he said, just get yourself a video camera. Get yourself a video camera. Go on a tour. Film it and see what comes of it. You know, And so it was that inspiration. My good friend Trevor, uh, who used to wrestle and he slept on my uh, couch when I was away wrestling. And then as I progressed in wrestling, he got into selling motorbikes and started making loads of money. And to pay me back, he bought a video camera for me to take on the road with me. So I took that and filmed everything I did. And I wrestled all over America, went back to England and Germany, I think as well, and filmed it all. And then didn't know what it was going to do. You know, I had no, really had no idea. I mean, I think I think part of me wanted to do this documentary and have something happen amazing. And at the end of it, oh, WWE cool and da da you get there. Nope. Didn't happen. <laughs> I ended up wrestling my last match um, in a small fire department in West Virginia. It was bittersweet, you know, given all the, the big shows and everything else that I'd done. But it was a show that, I got brought in because the guy who was running the show was a huge fan of mine as well. And Greg H for your ring of honor aficionados is like a super fan for ring of honor. He was always sat at a ringside and he came all the way down from the East coast to West Virginia specifically to watch the show. So it was, it was an amazing night. And then, that to me was the story of that documentary. Was feeling like I was a failure because I hadn't got to WWE and I hadn't been able to achieve my dreams. And then to see how I had touched so many people's lives along the way, other wrestlers on the show or fans, et cetera, et cetera. I'm giving it away now. Not that everyone's gonna, you know, buy the DVD <laughs> at this point. It's been out eleven years. <laughs> But at the end of it, you know, right at the end of it, I have I have a breakdown in the car. I just just lose the plot. You know, I'm like, why me? And this isn't fair. And you know, I deserve to get there. And I gave up absolutely everything, and just broke down. And then the next day, I believe, was when Brian Danielson won the WWE title for the first time. And he texted me that night saying, "I just won the title. I wish you were here. I'm sorry that you're not. You know." And it just Yeah, it it, it wrapped it all up perfectly. And then at that point, not knowing what I was going to do, I then said, right, you know what, I'll I'll put it on Kickstarter. And this was the early days of Kickstarter before everybody was on there. Mm -hmm. And so I just put it on there with a hope. Uh, I put a a couple of little um, clips. I edited them myself on iMovie up there. And I got, I think, about $65,000 in the space of three days. And that was the payoff of the movie, feeling like no one cared and I was a failure. And all of a sudden in three days, well, it was just amazing. And so that's what brought me to Los Angeles. I made a documentary here. I started getting into video editing, et etc. Et and then I think it's um, The Godfather. But it's one of those sort of movies, isn't it? That quote, just when you think you're getting out, they pull you back in. Back to Ring of Honor, I went. Oh,
1: Wow. Yeah. Nigel has such an incredible story, and I could sit here and listen to him talk about it for hours and hours and hours, but we don't have that kind of time on this show. But uh, we are still talking with magician, wrestler, commentator, Nigel McGuinness, and we've got more of it right here on AEW Unrestricted.
3: AEW Unrestricted, Aubrey, Will, Nigel. We're having an awesome conversation. Magicians, commentary video editor, director, you do it all. It's Mm. absolutely amazing. Like I already had so much respect for you. And now over the course of this, like 40 some minutes or whatever, we've been talking, I just even have more respect, especially you're so up on your nutrition as we were talking about during the break. Killing it,
2: brother. Yes, indeed. I'm back in shape. Take a look at that. 200 pounds. Mm. Mm. Lean, mean, fighting shape. So there you go. Get ready, Wembley.
1: Well, that's that's a good place to
2: go. Look at you guys.
1: (laughs) That's a good place to go next, because I'd at least like to ask you (laughs) about all in Wembley, August 27th. So many tickets sold. This has easily become the largest event AEW has ever put on. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to you to see AEW headed to London?
2: Yeah, I said when I did the announcement with Tony Khan that day, it's one of those moments, one of those things that you never could have imagined. If someone had told you, you just say, no way, no way, it's absolutely impossible. And there are these moments in life that hit you and you just go, this is, this is special because of that. Sometimes Fact is stranger than fiction, you know, all those cliches ring true, and this is certainly one of those. You you couldn't write this story, right? You know, a young kid, skinny young kid in England, grows up in the middle of middle class Kent, which is southeast of London, dreams of being a professional wrestler, has no idea of how to do it, and no sporting background whatsoever, you know, and struggles to finally get to America, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But that initial impetus comes in September excuse me, SummerSlam 92, being in Wembley Stadium and sitting there as 14 years old and going, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a wrestler. And then all this time later, 31 years later, to go back to the same venue to perform there is just absolutely incredible. Another huge blessing in a career of hundreds.
3: It's insane. I remember hearing that that morning I was on an email thread about something entirely different about like pre-sales for some US events. And somebody had said, just make sure we don't say anything until we make the announcement about Wembley. And I'm like, Hmm. that has to be a typo. (laughs) There's no way like that's Wembley fits like over 70,000 people. We we've done like 20k. Like that may, like maybe maybe they mean like a Wembley like one of the smaller stadiums nearby or whatever. like right. oh no
1: no yeah, we like mean, Wembley arena
2: yeah. Yeah, Wembley arena. No, we mean the real thing. God bless Tony Khan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Tony Khan, he, he swings for the fences, you know what I mean? Fortune favors the bold. It's a cliche, but it's true sometimes and it absolutely is the case now, you know. I I just it, it's fantastic for work for someone who's got those sort of cojones you know what i mean mm-hmm. <laughs> to take that shot and and it's clearly it's paid off you know what i mean yeah and there i was doing all the uh the um the media for it as soon as it was announced and saying you know oh if they sell out i might have to dust the boots off not thinking that uh, i should have thought really you know what i mean <laughs> such a great market for it but um and here we are closing on a on a sellout so
3: so obviously the joke in wrestling is that no one's ever retired. How how mm. th- I know that you put retired in your Twitter bio but like how how permanent is that? Like could we maybe see Nigel? I don't know.
2: Well I mean you know the, the truth of the matter is like the only way I was ever going to come out of retirement was for a match against Brian Danielson at Wembley Stadium Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know what I mean it was going to take something like that for me to come out of retirement and because I I really value my job doing announcing and there are so many other guys on the card uh, so much better than me and deserve those spots etc etc but in the right situation as I mentioned with Dragon at Wembley Stadium then I'd be crazy to not be open to that possibility but now you know Dragon has gone and broken his arm if you will you know i mean (laughs) let's be honest we all saw the x-rays and you know one of those bones was perfectly okay now (laughs) oh i don't know how many bones are in the human body like (laughs) 206 he's got all of them apart from one does he really need time off just throw rub some dirt on it you're good (laughs) he's sitting at home taking a paycheck Digging those clams out of the sand where he could be in there wrestling me. And be perfectly honest, he's probably a bit scared. I think so. Mm. It's ironic, isn't it, right? Let's be honest, because, you know, someone asked him that question in one of those media scrums, and he was like, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I respect Nigel as a commentator, but if he gets in the ring with me, I'd break his neck. And he's the one with a broken arm, and I never even got a chance to wrestle him.
3: Oh, man. I just just love the tea that we're dishing here. This is great. That is karma.
2: (laughs) That is karma. I'm not saying he'd be scared of, of wrestling me again. Of course, he's had you know, a lot more experience than me, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, you know, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I, I'm, in, I'm in as good shape now as I've ever been, you know. Uh, I'm, in, yes. I'm in ring shape. I'm ready to go. But I, I can't see myself wrestling if it's not in that sort of a situation, you know. That's the truth of the matter. And I think because it did – it made me think. I remember when he said that, and I thought, ooh. That's a little brusque, isn't it? You know, break my neck, you know. (laughs) I'm sure he can't feel threatened, but then it took me back to that match that we had. That match, as you will know, Will, there in Liverpool, right? We had that match where he rammed my head into the ring post four times, knocked me out damn nearly, and left me on the outside to get counted out. But, you know, I got back in the ring, and I will always remember the look on his face when I came up covered in claret ready to kill him, ready, ready to murder him. That look of fear, you know what I mean? That's a look of fear that doesn't disappear in 12 years. That stays with you for the rest of his life. Oh. To, to me, that sounded like someone who didn't want that match to happen. And you could <laughs> understand why. Oh. All I'm saying. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, I think we can break it down just a little bit. We put it out there To the fans to get some questions, we got a lot in. And I wanted to start with this one on the topic. uh, This one here from Jason. It says, can you tell the story about how and why you started calling Brian Danielson Clam Digger?
2: Me and Brian used to hang out a lot after shows. He was on the East Coast. Excuse me. He was on the West Coast at the time. So he'd get a, a red eye in and he'd get to the venue super early. First time I ever met him, it was in Dayton. And I always used to get there early as well because I wanted to warm up and meet everybody, et cetera, et cetera, set the ring up, whatever would need to be done. And he was always there reading a book beforehand. And there's something about Brian Danielson that if you haven't met him outside of the wrestling What's that word? Understated. You know what I mean? He doesn't doesn't strike you straight away, but there's this charisma underneath the surface, which is so undeniable. Yes. And when he went to WWE, they had no idea, no idea. And it's just there. And then it grabs you. And when it grabs you, that's why he became the phenomenon that he did, because he just has that ability to connect and to draw you in. And it's not overt. It's not obvious. But from the first day I met him, I, I saw it then. And I always felt like we'd have that connection together. You know what I mean? So we would hang out and talk about things and have these great philosophical discussions, etc., etc. And I found out that in his spare time, he's a clam digger. He digs up clams for a hobby. So he goes out to the beach with one of these little gimmick spades, right? Do you know how clam digging works?
3: I, I myself am a clam digger. So yes. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh. A closet clam digger. I, I mean, I recently was telling Brian about my my current setup with uh, all of my oysters that I'm growing, and then I ah. planted about eight thousand clams. So, yes, I've been I've been patiently waiting for this question to be answered. Like, yes, okay. So uh, <laughs>
2: you might you might chastise me here, then Aubrey, because <laughs> maybe I've got this wrong. But it was my recollection that you get clams as the tide is going out, Correct. and as soon as the water goes off from the sand. You see little bubbles. And these are these poor, defenseless clams. And they're (laughs) they're coming up going, I'll have a little bit. Maybe there's a little. And then, boom, in comes this big spade. And that's the end of their life. And the clam family who cares about the clam family? Cause they're just going to take the mummy clam and, and the daddy clam and the little baby clam stay down there. And he's a clam digger. And, and so that's really the, the epitome of the story that what a nerd, what a nerd, you know what I mean? He's, he's a world champion. He's going out, rolling up his, his trousers with his little, little spade, his little bucket, like a four year old to dig up these little, poor defenseless animals. Well,
3: I mean, They're not really animals. They're kind of more closer to plants. They don't have nervous systems or brains. What? So really it's like, yeah.
2: (laughs) You tell that to my clam.
3: (laughs) Did I just offend your whole clam family?
2: (laughs) I've got a pet clam over there right now. I'm not going to bring him on screen because he's a bit shy.
3: That's fine.
2: That's fine. What's
3: your clam's name? Sam. Sam the clam.
2: See what I did there? (laughs)
3: Yeah. Oh, my God. This is great. Yes. yes.
2: Okay, we're moving on from the
3: casting <laughs> in question, I think. <laughs> oh, my God. Can we stretch oh my God. That for as far as we can? A uh, question from Richard Ross on Twitter. Hmm. He asks, does he still wear his Blue Peter badge? And can you explain what Blue Peter is to a worldwide audience?
2: Yes, well, certainly uh, uh, the phrase Blue Peter could be um, misconstrued. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it doesn't mean I'm, that. I'm sorry. I'm Twelve yeah. years old. Well, <laughs> yeah, your
2: mind went straight to the gutter, which wasn't. A- Was my intention. What were we talking about the break earlier? (laughs) Yeah, Ah, there we go. Nice segue. Yeah, Blue Peter is a kid's show that's been on good lord since the fifties, sixties perhaps. It's it's a staple of kids' TV in the UK. If you grew up in the UK, you grew up watching Blue Peter and it was a fantastic show. They'd show you how to build like a rocket ship using toilet roll paper and glue and anything you can find around the house if you go on the show you get a blue peter badge and so these things are really rare really hard to get and when i got signed to do the uk tournament with wwe michael cole got me booked on blue peter and we went there and and i got a blue peter badge and i actually got two blue peter badges just so i could show them to robbie brookside and uh rub it in his face but um yeah so <laughs> i got two of those and i still have them and uh you know i've just moved out so uh, i'm sure it's somewhere but i need to certainly grab because i need to wear it to wembley no question
3: oh yeah That's got to be a thing. Mm. Nigel, this was just such a wonderful conversation. And thank you so much for joining us today. This was so great and wonderful. And I'm so glad you're a part of the AEW family. This is great.
2: No worries. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, like I said, Will, when you're ready at the show, Aubrey, I've got the cards. I'm ready to go. So uh, whenever you want the magic, the magic man is there.
1: I'm I'm literally holding you to that this Saturday. (laughs)
2: I love it so much.
3: You can follow Nigel McGinnis on Instagram, McGinnis Nigel. And of course, you can listen and follow this podcast aew unrestricted apple podcast spotify wherever you get your podcast episodes go up on youtube on mondays you can listen to this man's wonderful voice on collision on saturdays you can also watch dynamite wednesdays ring of honor on thursdays rampage on fridays we're all over the place everywhere we're live all the time i'm aubrey edwards along with my co-host will washington thank you so much for listening to aew unrestricted
2: come on throw your hands up let me see you unrestricted Pump and make them bounce now. applause like they bounce in the-